All right, we're going to continue in our series, Diamonds of Hope for Your Darkest Days. Diamonds of Hope for Your Darkest Days. I'm sharing these messages because I'll tell you what, we can live without a lot of things, but we can't live without hope. The Bible calls our God the God of hope. As a matter of fact, the God of all hope. If you take hope away from people, they die. Without hope, you wilt and you die. That's why no matter what you're experiencing, no matter where you find yourself today, you've got to have hope. And that's why I'm sharing these messages because the diamond of hope, no matter what your situation is, the diamond of hope is shining, glistening, glittering in your darkest day. It's there. God has hope for you. And you know, when I think about the message of hope, the subject of hope, I got to think of Joseph. You know, I've read the story of Joseph so many times. To me, it's the greatest way in the world that God could have ever ended the book of Genesis is to end it with the story of Joseph. And if ever, ever somebody needed to be carried by the supernatural hand of hope, it had to have been Joseph. And Joseph's life, to me, is soap opera material in the best possible sense of the word. I'm amazed that some Hollywood director has not done the story of Joseph because it carries all the elements of Shakespearean drama. I have never read it without weeping at the end, reading the end of the story of Joseph, how God turned everything around, how God blessed him, how God's often invisible hand was carrying him when he didn't see it or wasn't aware of it. When I see the incredible power of providence, the undeniable sovereignty of God in the life of his child Joseph, and therefore in our lives, that God is never trumped by the devil. He's never checkmated by our adversary. Joseph's story to me is just incredible. I want to read Genesis 41, verse 50 through 52. And here we're coming sort of towards the end of Joseph's life. It's talking about now that he's been delivered from the prison, and I'm going to go through his story in just a moment. But he's on the other side of his prison experience, and he's beginning to really walk in the fullness of his calling. And it says in Genesis 41, verse 50, And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Now here's what Manasseh meant. And I want you to write this down or just log it in your brain because what he named these children were pictures and testimonies to what God had done in his life. I mean, he's naming these children as a testimony, a living testimony to the incredible work of grace that God had done in his life. So Manasseh means, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. God has made me forget. Now, I'm going to talk about that very important verse in just a little bit, but keep that in mind. God has made me forget all my toil in my father's house. He has made me forget, in essence, all my pain. Then he comes to the next one. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God, he said, has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. What a powerful testimony. What an incredible word. Now, let me just go into Joseph's story uh, in a nutshell. Let me just sort of sweep through it and give a sort of uh, overall view of what happened in Joseph's life because it is so, so powerful. 
First of all, Joseph is the son of Jacob, the patriarch Jacob. And he's also one of two sons of Rachel, who Jacob had loved. And if you remember the story of Jacob, you remember that he had to flee from his own father's house into the land where his uncle lived, his uncle Laban, that Jacob encountered Rachel at the well. And it says that immediately Jacob fell in love with Rachel. Well, you remember how Laban sort of worked a number on him, told him if he would work for seven years, he could have Rachel for his wife. And of course, he manipulated him and he deceived him. And Jacob reaped some of what he had sown with his own father Isaac. And so he discovered that Leah, Rachel's sister, was in the wedding tent that night and not Rachel. Laban told him, well, seven more years and you can have Rachel. So in a nutshell, Jacob worked for 14 years to get Rachel's hand in marriage. Now that's love. That's love. That is true love. And the Bible makes the point of saying that those years seemed as nothing to him for the love that he had for Rachel. Now that's a testimony of love. Love can wait. Lust never can. But love can wait. And so here we find now Jacob has been all those years in Laban's household, working for Laban. Finally, he came back to the promised land. In his journey back, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And now he's got these 12 sons. And these 12 sons are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Rachel gave birth to two children, Joseph and Benjamin. And she died giving birth to Benjamin. And so here is Joseph now. And Joseph is... Jacob's favorite. Jacob had a favorite. He played family favorites, and he made Joseph a coat of many colors. And you know, that just shouts to me of how God anoints people and has favor on some people. And I've noticed, as I'm sure you have, that when God favors us, if God blesses you in a particular way that is outstanding, it incites jealousy, it incites envy. And this is exactly what happened to Joseph. He put on this coat of many colors. There's no doubt in my mind that he strutted, he kind of got a little cocky with this, a little bit prideful, and he strutted, and he sort of rubbed it in a little bit with his 11 brothers, and they grew to hate him. They grew to hate Joseph. And so the Bible says that one day they captured him, they threw him into a well, they were going to kill him, they were going to take his life, their own brother, but they were talked out of it by Judah, and they decided to sell him to some slave traders and they sold him away they sold him to some slave traders Ishmaelite slave traders and Joseph was carried off into Egypt I've often wondered what in the world was going through his mind how that must have just devastated him that his brothers sitting there watching him being taken away shackled in a slave caravan being taken off to a foreign land not blinking, not crying, not mourning, no remorse, just took him. How those faces must have haunted him. How he had to have dealt with bitterness. He was a normal human being. He must have had to have dealt with offense and bitterness on a major scale. He's carried off into Egypt, a strange land, a strange people, a strange language. And there he is purchased by Potiphar. And Potiphar takes him into his house. 
And before long, because of God's favor, that silver lining of grace and favor was on his life. And Potiphar saw that everything he touched turned to gold, that he was successful with everything that he did. And so Potiphar put him over his whole house. Well, the Bible says that Joseph was a handsome man. Potiphar had a wife. And the Bible says that she cast lustful eyes on him and began to try to seduce him. Joseph resisted her overtures over and over again. Finally, one day, he was in the house alone with her. She invited him to bed. He fled. As he was fleeing the room, she grabbed his garment. His garment came off and he ran. She took that garment, showed it to Potiphar, showed it to the guards of the house, and lied. Just told a bald-faced lie and said that he had tried to rape her. I don't know. I've never been convinced that Potiphar really believed her. I think he knew what he had married by this point. But nevertheless, he had to take action, so he did. And Joseph, unjustifiably, was thrown into prison, an Egyptian dungeon. And there he spent years. Now, I don't know about you folks, but I got to tell you, if I was sitting in a dungeon for years for something I had not done, and all I had ever done wrong was maybe had a little bit of pride Maybe I was a little bit uh, self-confident or whatever, but nothing criminal, nothing wrong. Joseph had had a dream, and he had seen his family submitting to him. He had seen his own brothers and his own parents submitting to him. He had made the mistake of telling them about that, and that's probably one of the reasons they sold him into slavery. But that's all that he had ever done. And now here he is sitting in prison, He's not a criminal. He has no business being down there. He has always been a young man of God. He's not sinned. He didn't sin with Potiphar's wife. There was no blight between him and God. And yet there he is down in that dungeon. You talk about life not being fair. You talk about life taking a wrong turn. You talk about having to suffer for something you did not do. I think if anybody in the Bible could have looked up and said, God, I believed in you. I believed the dream that you gave me. I believed you had a destiny for me. I saw my own family, my own brothers, my own parents bowing down to me. I don't know what it meant, but I know you gave me that dream. I know I'm a child of promise. And now, God, where are you? Where are you? How have you let this happen to me? How has it come to this? Why didn't you step in and intervene? and show that Potiphar's wife was lying. Where were you when my brothers sold me into slavery? Why didn't you providentially bring Jacob onto the scene before I was carried away, or I could have been rescued? And you know, I thought about this as well. Years in prison, surely he had to stop and think and imagine in his imagination, his brothers are sitting at home, sitting with Jacob, a wealthy man, enjoying that wealth, enjoying their families, enjoying the fruit of the patriarchal blessing. And here he sits in prison. He had to have wondered, have they ever gotten convicted and come and looked for me? Have they ever gotten smitten in their conscience and decided to come find me? Here I am rotting in an Egyptian dungeon, and not one of my brothers, not Judah, not Benjamin, None of them have come looking for me. And you know that he had to have thought, I am a forgotten man, out of mind. I might as well be dead. There he sat for years in prison. 
Now, one day, some visitors were put down in that prison, Pharaoh's chief butler and chief baker. And the Bible says that Joseph began to talk to them, and he noticed one day that their countenances were downcast. And he said to them, what's the matter with you? And they said, well, we've had dreams. They told him their dreams. And Joseph said, I've got good news and I've got bad news. He said to the chief baker, Pharaoh's going to take your head off. But he said to the chief butler, you're going to be restored to your position. And when you are, will you remember me? You know, there is pathos in that question. There's pathos in that request. I can just feel Joseph's heart. Would somebody remember me? My brothers haven't remembered me. My father, surely though he remembers me, now I'm becoming a faint memory. It's been years now. Can you remember me, Chief Butler? Because I have interpreted your dream, and I'm going to see you delivered. Would you remember me? But the Bible says that he did not remember him, and when he was restored to his position under Pharaoh, that he forgot him. He forgot him. So once again, Joseph was forgotten. You can almost make his middle name forgotten. And then one day, finally, after years had gone by, Pharaoh had some dreams. Nobody in his kingdom could interpret these dreams. Nobody could make sense of them. And the chief butler suddenly remembered the young man in the Egyptian dungeon who had interpreted his dream accurately. And he said, there is a man down in the dungeon who interpreted my dream. And if anybody can interpret Pharaoh's dream, it's him. Pharaoh ordered Joseph out of there. And I can just imagine Joseph sitting in there for years, and suddenly, here comes one of the guards. Pharaoh wants to see you. A million things could have gone through your mind. This is the day of my execution. Maybe somebody else has said something wrong about me. Maybe I've been falsely accused again. But no, when Pharaoh brought him before him, he said, I've had dreams, and I want you to interpret them. And Joseph interpreted his dreams. And in essence, he said, there's going to be seven years of blessing and then seven years of famine, seven years of plenty, and then seven years of nothing. Pharaoh better store up grain and prepare for the famine that is coming. And Pharaoh was shocked. He was stunned. He said, is there a man like this in all the kingdom who can interpret dreams in whom is the Spirit of God? And Joseph was promoted, and he was given a ring. And everybody in Egypt was told when Joseph went by, they had to bow and give him honor. And this young man who had dreamed a dream when he was a teenage boy, that he was going to be promoted in a position of great authority, so great that even his family was going to be submitted to him, he's finally promoted. And he was put in a great place in all the land of Egypt. He is second only to Pharaoh. And I begin to see, ladies and gentlemen, that here is where God began to turn everything around. You see, there is a diamond of hope in the dungeon of your deepest despair. There is a diamond of hope. And that diamond of hope is that God can heal you on the inside. God can heal your memories. God can bless you where the devil tried to destroy you. Our God is a restoring God. And what Joseph experienced, Joseph experienced that God began to heal his memories. No doubt he was deeply wounded over what his brothers had done. No doubt he was shattered in his spirit over being separated from his beloved father Jacob. No doubt 
the abuse, the lies, the slander that have been spread about him, Potiphar's wife lying about him, accused of being a rapist, accused of being one who would commit sexual assault against Potiphar's wife, forgotten, out of mind, lost his family, lost his reputation. Now suddenly he's promoted second only in Egypt and only God can do that. The healing, the recovery, the restoration was so strong, so marked, so distinct, so memorable that Joseph decided to name his children after what God had done for him. Now I want you to once again return with me to what he named his children. He had two sons. He's been delivered from prison. He is preparing grain for the seven years of famine that are coming. He's about to be restored to all of his brothers and his beloved father, Jacob. And now he says, when he looks at the first boy born to him, he says, the only thing I can name you, son, is Manasseh, which means making forgetful. For God has made me forget. God has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. You know, there's nothing that can sting you like a memory that just won't go away. And they usually come from a hurt. Somebody says something. Somebody does something. Something happens to you. Something unfair. Something cruel. You thought you were going to get that raise and you didn't. Somebody else got it and they hadn't worked as hard as you. Or perhaps when you were a child, the worst of the worst happened and you were abused sexually by a relative or a neighbor, someone you knew. And life has not been fair. And it's been a temptation for you to look up and say, God, I feel like I was born under a bad sign. I feel like I was born in a bad time. Unfair things have happened to me. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? I'm hurting on the inside. I've got a cynical, pessimistic outlook on life because of what happened to me. But that did not happen to Joseph. I want you to notice that that did not happen to Joseph. Joseph had every right in the world to be one of the most bitter men on the planet. But Joseph was not bitter. Joseph got better. He did not get bitter. He obviously forgave his brothers because when he was finally confronted with his brothers and his brothers were afraid that now this powerful man who also happened to be their brother Joseph was going to kill them for what they had done to him. Yet the Bible says Joseph looked at them and said, no, what you intended for evil, God meant it for good. There's not a whisper of bitterness, not a whisper of resentment. He feeds them. He receives them. He takes care of them. He shelters them. It is a beautiful, beautiful picture of Jesus Christ himself who prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. No, Joseph was not branded by bitterness. He was not marked by resentment. He was not colored with black hatred. No. The Bible says that God had done something in this young man. Forgetful. Come here, forgetful. He named that first boy forgetful. I can just picture him saying to him at night, come here, forgetful. Sit on daddy's lap. Let me tell you why I've named you forgetful. I've named you forgetful because I went through a great pain, son. My brothers betrayed me. 
I lost my home. I was sold into slavery. And then I was put down in prison for something I didn't do. Son, I knew a lot of pain. I could have been a bitter man. I could have died wilted and bitter. But God moved me to forgive. And God blessed me on such a level, son. He's done such a wonderful thing in me that I'm going to name you forgetful. And here's why. Because God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Now, he didn't have some kind of divine amnesia. He remembered the events. He recalled being sold into slavery. But here's what he's saying. When I think about what was done to me, the memory has no more sting. The memory has no more sting. It doesn't sting me anymore. I don't feel pain. I don't feel that grief on the inside. It doesn't make my stomach tight. It doesn't rob me of sleep. It doesn't take away my appetite. When I think of what was done to me, there's no more pain. God has taken it away. Trials, heartbreaks, hurts, disappointments, and betrayals happen. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, the psalmist said, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. The reason that Joseph experienced healing, I'm convinced, is because he forgave. And he saw the bigger picture. He forgave and he saw the bigger picture. He realized that God had used his brother's evil intent to get him into Egypt. God didn't move his brothers to do it. That was their own hearts. But God being God, God being sovereign, God being providential, God took what they meant for evil, and he, Romans 8.28, it. He turned it for the good. And Joseph saw, wow, God brought me to Egypt knowing what would happen to me that I had the gift of interpreting dreams and it came from God. And Pharaoh would have these dreams. An earth-shattering famine was on the way. And God had anointed me and appointed me and called me and destined me to be promoted second only to Pharaoh. Not only so I could save all the people of Egypt from starvation, but so that I could save my 11 brothers and my father Jacob because out of Israel is going to come the Messiah through whom all the nations of the earth are destined to be blessed. And I saved the embryonic Jewish race from extinction so that God's ultimate plan of sending Messiah would not be sabotaged. He forgave his brothers and he saw the bigger picture. And those two things delivered him. And God is there in your trial, your heartbreak, your hurt, your disappointment, your betrayal. And he takes the sting out. It reminds me of the story of the father and his little girl that are driving down the highway. And they're driving along and they got the windows down because it's a beautiful spring day. And all of a sudden into the car flies a big bee. And this bee begins to fly around in the front seat. And the little girl panics. Daddy, daddy the bee is going to sting us. And the dad said, honey, it's okay. The bee's not going to sting us. But the little girl could not have any peace. The bee kept flying around in front of them. Finally, to quell her fears, the father reached out and in one swoop grabbed the bee in his hand. The bee stung him. And then he opened his hand, threw the bee out the window, and he said, there now, baby, the bee is not going to sting us. I took the stinger out. 
And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He grabbed the devil and he took the sting of death and hell and the grave. And then at the resurrection, he opened his hand and he said, there, baby, he can't sting you anymore if you put your faith in me. But it goes further than just delivering us from hell. Jesus can reach into your innermost innermost, into your heartbreaks, your trials, your disappointments, your betrayals, your hurts, and he can grab the same bee. He can take the stinger, and he can remove the hurt from you. And that's what he had done with Joseph. He took extremely painful memories, and he took the stinger out. And that's the diamond of hope in your darkest day, that he can actually heal your memories if you give them to him and say, Jesus, heal me. But then Joseph had a second child, and that second child was named Ephraim. And Ephraim means not just fruitful, but double fruitful. Ephraim means double fruitful. Boy, I like that. For God, he said, has caused me to be double fruitful in the land of my affliction. And this is, if I could call it this, the genius of Christianity. That what the enemy means for evil, God turns it for good. When the devil thinks he's got you, he not only loses you, but God double blesses you. God didn't move him to another place to bless him. No, no, no. God left him right there where Satan had tried to destroy him. God didn't need to move him. God makes you fruitful in the very place where the enemy tried to destroy you. And I believe he does this because he loves thumbing his nose at the devil. I believe God thumbs his nose at the devil. You look at where the devil tried to destroy you. Was it drugs? Was it alcohol? Was it illicit relationships? Was it some kind of abuse? Whatever it was, that's the land of your affliction. And what God does is God comes along and God touches that tragedy with his resurrection power. Here's Joseph. He's beginning to experience the healing of his memories. But God said, that's not enough. I don't just want you healed of your memories. I'm going to take you now, Joseph, and I'm going to promote you. I'm going to promote you second only to Pharaoh. I'm going to promote you where Potiphar's wife lied about you. I'm going to promote you in the very place where you were sold as a slave. I'm going to promote you in the very location your brothers sold you to destroy you. I'm going to doubly bless you, Joseph. I'm going to make you doubly fruitful. He doesn't just sustain you. God doesn't just kind of help you. He doesn't just hold your hand. God double blesses you. He is the God of the double blessing. I believe the stronger the attack, the stronger will be the blessing. For every attack Satan levels against God's people, God turns it around and doubly blesses them. This ought to be shouting ground. This ought to be exciting. This ought to move you. This ought to stir you that God is never defeated. God is never trumped by the devil. God is never checkmated by the adversary of our soul. But every time he tries to attack us, if we will give it to him, if we will forgive, if we will turn it over to him, if we'll give him time, if we will refuse to take vengeance into our own hands, God will bless us. And I can see Joseph now on the other side of prison, sitting second only to Pharaoh, in a beautiful home, a beautiful wife, two beautiful children. I can see him just sitting there and saying one night, 
Come here, fruitful. Come here, forgetful. Sit on daddy's lap. When they were three, when they were five, when they were seven, as they grew up, every time he looked at them, he said, there's fruitful and there's forgetful because God healed my memories of all the pain and God made me doubly fruitful in the very land where Satan tried to destroy me. If you turn to Genesis 48, you find Jacob dying and he's ready to bless his grandsons. He's got all 12 of the boys there. And when he comes to Joseph, I noticed he doesn't emphasize the negative past. He emphasizes the fruitful future. And he predicts tremendous things for Joseph and Joseph's offspring. And that's God. God does not focus on your negative past or mine. God focuses on our fruitful future. And that's what God's looking at with you right now. You know, I believe that many of you listening to me have been deeply hurt. Living in this world, most people have been deeply hurt. You're wounded on the inside. You're bleeding on the inside. You wonder how you're going to handle it. You wonder if you're ever going to get over it. Is the sting ever going to go away? Am I ever going to be able to think of those things and not feel pain? Well, I bring to you the diamond of hope for your darkest day, the hope of the Joseph blessing, forgetful and fruitful. Some of you have lost a loved one, a spouse walked out, a loved one walked out on you. Maybe your child left and you're feeling shattered and alone, forsaken, just like Joseph. Or maybe the enemy has really, really run a number on you and he's tried to destroy you. I want you to remember the Joseph blessing, that if you give it to God and obey him and follow him, God will take what the enemy has tried to do to destroy you and he'll make you fruitful right in the very presence of the land of your affliction. I believe that's what David meant when David said, he prepares a table before me in the very presence of my enemy. My cup runs over. God wants to do that for you and I want to pray for you. Father, I pray for everyone here and everybody listening by radio that you will release your healing hand. Lord, only you can step into the inner sanctum of our souls and bind up a broken heart. Only you can take memories that bring nothing but pain and, Lord, take the stinger out. Only you, Lord, can bless us in such a way that we're fruitful in the very land where we were afflicted. Not only fruitful, but doubly so. I pray for every wounded walker right now. Give them the hope of the Joseph blessing. Show them what they need to do, how to respond to you in faith. And Lord, I believe that they will have the same testimony. God made me fruitful and God has made me forget. In Jesus' name, amen.